So Father, as we come now to your word, Lord, we come to it because it is a sure and a firm foundation. Father, in this world where days change and seasons change and people change, Father, even as the very notion of truth is under attack, as words and terms are redefined, Lord, we praise you that your word remains the same that you have given us a sure and a firm foundation upon which we can build our lives. We thank you for the perfect finished work of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, who paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, who declared that it was finished and in whose victory we get to stand this morning. So fathers, we come to this word, we ask that you would use it to search us and to uh, know us, Lord, to reveal to us sin and inconsistencies, Father, things that are not in step with what you have revealed to be best for us today. Father, this morning, we especially ask that you would guard our hearts against pride. The pride of believing that we can do this on our own, that we can earn this on our own, the pride that causes us to look down on others. So Lord, guard us against this today, that we would not be those who are closing the doors of the kingdom in the faces of those who need you. So Holy Spirit, we ask you to have your way in this place this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm gonna invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 23. Uh, we're gonna be in verses 13 through 15 this morning. If you're here today uh, for the first time as our guest, my name is Taylor and I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. I wanna welcome you, uh, those who are joining online this morning as well. And last week, we as a church family began a new message series called Bad Religion. We're spending several weeks studying Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus uh, addresses the problem of religious pride and and the toxic fundamentalism that had corrupted the faith in his day uh, continues to corrupt faith even in our day. So Matthew chapter 23, again, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15 this morning. Just a couple of weeks ago, Gallup released the results of a survey that they have been doing since about the 1930s that measures uh, membership uh, to local churches or religious organizations in our nation in proportion to the general population. And uh, the results of that survey indicated that for the first time since they've done this research back in the 1930s, uh, within our nation, uh, the general population for the first time, less than 50% says that they belong to any sort of church or religious organization. And you know, I don't want to be overly negative this morning, uh, leading out our time together, uh, but you need to understand when you read studies like this and surveys like this, when it talks just about church membership, that the problem is actually much worse than the results indicate. Because these numbers really just reflect someone who might be a follower of Jesus and their name is possibly on a church membership roster somewhere, but they're basically non-practicing Christians. Might darken the doors, of the church once a year. Maybe they haven't been in 10, 20, 30 years. And so that would include uh, those who are followers of Jesus in name, but uh, most likely not in practice as well. Then you pair those numbers uh, with the increasing rise of the group that's known as the religious nuns. We have in our culture right now uh, about 20% who identify as having no religious affiliation whatsoever. Some studies show that going up to 30%. And when you really dig into the fabric of some of these stories of those who have no religious identity or or even more popularly, the deconversion story phenomenon. Uh, This is those who uh, will go on social media in particular, 
and announce that they're no longer people of faith, that they're walking away from the faith. You see just at the outset what appears to be this very, very troubling picture, and it is a troubling picture. Because when you dive into a lot of the stories of those who are uh, quote unquote deconverting or deconstructing, moving away from the faith, what you find unfortunately in many cases is people who are not uh, stopping their following of Jesus. It's not that they're necessarily walking away from Jesus as much as it is they're stepping away from a culture of religious hypocrisy with which they can no longer bear. It's, it's that they've grown up in a, a very toxic, legalistic, fundamentalist type culture that has burdened them with the rules of man and equated them as equally authoritative as the word of God. And over time, what happens is people realize I can't measure up to that, so they leave. So we just say, if, if that's what following Jesus is about, then I'm out. And I want nothing else to do with this. And, and so uh, when we get into this text this morning, typically when I'm preparing for messages, that's happening like two or three weeks in advance of when I, I actually preached them. And I went back and I, I reworked a good bit this past week because I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys this morning. Uh, after we first touched on these things last Sunday morning, it was absolutely overwhelming this week. The, the number of conversations I had with many of you right after service last week, the number of messages and emails we received, conversations we had throughout the course of the week, even people were just listening online and wrote in and say, man, that was my story. So many people who have either, uh, because of the burdensome legalistic culture, have said, I want nothing to do with the church, or some who have been on the verge of saying, look, I'm done. I mean, just right on the breaking point in trying to figure out, what does this mean for me right now? And I'm just so burdened right now because I know that this is true. I knew that we were gonna, this was gonna touch a lot of our hearts just being here in the Bible Belt, knowing that that's still, unfortunately, a very prevalent culture even here in our own community. And, and man, church, my heart is just so burdened today and has been for the last week over all of us who have walked that path of feeling like following Jesus is more about following a list of rules than it is following a person. And my deep prayer, my sincere desire over these next several weeks for many is that you will find true freedom in Jesus Christ and the joy of what it means to truly know him. Is this past week, uh, Pastor Ray Ortland tweeted this out and I thought it was just so pertinent for where we were going this morning. He said, I rejoice at the decline of Bible Belt religion. And just understand, he's using that as shorthand for this culture of toxic legalism and fundamentalism. And he goes on to say why. He says, it made bad people worse in the name of Jesus. Now, because of this decline, he says, we may actually believe in him so that our churches stand out both with the truth of gospel doctrine and the beauty of gospel culture. And to that end, I gladly devote my life. So church, you, you and I need to understand right off the bat this morning, we're going to see this as we jump into Matthew chapter 23, not all decline of religion is bad. As a matter of fact, some of it, we, we shouldn't just rejoice when it happened. We, we should be eager to take it to its grave because it's a lot of what Jesus is addressing here in Matthew chapter 23. And our prayer is that at the decline of man-centered religion, what would be exalted in its place is the true freedom and joy of walking in faith with Jesus Christ so that we can have a pure picture in this culture that's so confused today about what a Christian is. 
because the message has been so corrupted by toxic fundamentalism and illegalism. So just as a quick recap, if you weren't here with us last week, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 through 12, Jesus really gave an introduction to who the scribes and the Pharisees were. We saw last week that these were two religious groups that really emerged uh, during the intertestamental period. This was about 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And these two groups emerged out of a concern for the increased secularization of Jewish Jewish culture. This was the result of Alexander the Great's process of Hellenization and imposing uh, Greek culture. So out of concern uh, that the word of God would not be obeyed, out of concern that Jewish culture and heritage and customs wouldn't be upheld, these two groups emerged. The scribes were lawyers. They were experts in the law of God. And the Pharisees were more theological and their aim was to interpret the word of God and apply it to the situations of everyday life. So this started as a good and pure desire. But over time, what started to happen was the Pharisees and the scribes took their interpretations of the law, their man-made interpretations of the law, and they treated them as equally authoritative as the word of God itself. And so when people were unable to keep up with the man-made laws that had been imposed on top of the word of God, they would shut the door in their faces and cast them out. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has been talking for a few chapters about the scribes and Pharisees, but now he begins direct, talking directly to them. And today we're going to see the first two woes that Jesus pronounces against the scribes and the Pharisees. You remember from last week that a woe is a pronouncement of judgment or condemnation. It's, it's born out of a, a deep and sincere place of grief and agony and pain over something wrong that's taking place. And church, again, the reason why we're looking at at these books and and the reason particularly we're going to look at this passage today is because we need to understand that it is very, very possible. And it's not just possible, it has happened. That those who know the most Bible, that those who know the most doctrine, that those who know the most theology, that those who know the most about how to apply the word of God to instances of everyday life can also be the people who are most responsible for driving people away from Christ. And it should be our sincere prayer today that we not be people who are driving people in that way. And so if you're following along in your notes this morning, what we're going to see is that as followers of Christ, we have to be on guard against corrupt religious conviction disguised as sincere religious devotion. And in doing that, we're just going to take a look at the deception of zeal. Oftentimes, external religious zeal can be a really good front and a cover for a dead religious heart. And so we cannot be people who are just focused on the externals who think that because of our behavior that we have inherited righteousness and that we have the authority and the freedom to close that door to others who are seeking Jesus. So let's read from Matthew chapter 23, uh, verses 13 through 15. Jesus says, but woe to you, Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." Heavy words from Jesus. So we see the first woe here this morning that Jesus addresses. It's shutting the kingdom door. 
You shut the door of the kingdom in the faces of the people. Now, uh, in Matthew chapter 23, this is the most intense and harsh language we see Jesus using in all of the gospels. Uh, As a matter of fact, there are a number of biblical critics and critical scholars who have tried to take the words of Jesus and use them as evidence that Jesus actually sinned. They said, look, you can't talk to people like this and it not be considered sin. I mean, Jesus does not mince words. You're gonna see it here in just a few minutes. He takes absolutely uh, no prisoners here does not mince his words as he pronounces this condemnation on the religious culture. And so as he pronounces this first woe of shutting the door of the kingdom in the faces of people, a door that the Pharisees had not themselves even entered, he calls them hypocrites. Now the word uh, for hypocrite that's used is the word that we would use for an actor or a pretender. That's what Jesus is calling him. He's saying, you're pretenders. We saw last week, man, that the religious garb, it said, I've got it together. I mean, they literally wore their righteousness on their garments. They knew the law. They knew the Bible inside and out, the Jewish Mosaic law. They knew it cover to cover far better than any one of us would know the word of God for ourselves today. I mean, they knew it. They knew doctrine. They knew theology. They knew application to everyday life. But Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're pretenders. You look the part, you're playing the part, you know all the lines, but their hearts were far from him. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, Rami Malek won the Academy Award for uh, playing, portraying um, Freddie Mercury, who was the front man for Queen in the movie Bohemian Rhapsody. And I remember watching, uh, while, right before the movie release, there was a, an interview with Jimmy Fallon where they were talking to him about just how he fully embodied this character. I mean, everything from, you know, they, they got the teeth and just his mannerisms and the way he dressed, the way he acted, the way he carried himself, even uh, living members of Queen today, they're like, man, it was just scary how much he just got into this character. And we've seen different actors do that. I mean, you think guys like Daniel Day-Lewis and others who are just like, man, they fully embody a character that they're portraying. If you uh, watch the movie, the last 20 minutes of the movie, it's, it is a shot-for-shot remake of the Live Aid concert from 1985. It's widely considered one of the greatest uh, live rock and roll performances of, of all time. And you, you can go on YouTube and actually watch the two per, uh, parallel next to each other, the real one versus the film one, and it's, it's almost identical. But, but here's the thing, guys, as we're watching that movie, as, as we're watching this film, No matter how much he looks the part, no matter how much he sounds the part, no matter how well he plays the part, he knows all of the lines, it doesn't change the fact that that's not Freddie Mercury, that's Rami Malek. And that's what Jesus is saying about the Pharisees. They look the part. They sound right. They look right. I mean, they've got this down to a T, but it doesn't change the fact that they're pretenders. They have the external religious behavior, but internally they are spiritually dead. And this is evidenced by the fact that they would shut the door of the kingdom in the faces of the people. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles for just a moment to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read verses 9 through 14 because this is a story that really puts this on display. Where Jesus addresses how they exalted their own righteousness at the expense of others, looking down on them and condemning them. So Luke chapter 18, excuse me, we're going to read verses 9 through 14. So as Luke often does, he tells us in the first line what the parable is about. He says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So this is who he's speaking to, those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
So that's what Jesus is addressing here. Those who exalted their own righteousness and used that righteousness as a way to condemn and treat others with contempt. Verse 10 says, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. As he reads off his resume, I fast twice a week. That was more than the law even required. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went home justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what Jesus is addressing. It's the person who looks at their religious resume, says, I've clearly got it all together, and I praise God that I'm not like those people who don't. In all of this, at least I'm not like them. It's just evidence against us that we're not striving to be like Christ. We saw this last week, church. We do not get our righteousness horizontally by looking at others. That comes vertically from Jesus. He's the only standard by which we should be comparing ourselves. And in light of his perfection and holiness, none of us measure up. None of us do. So, so we, we have no authority whatsoever to be looking down and to be condemning those who, by our standards, are worse sinners than us. Like, you understand, if you're looking for someone who's a worse sinner than you, they're like going to be that subjective, you're always going to find somebody, right? Like, we'll always find someone who, according to our perception and in our estimation, they're way worse than us. Like, I'm sinner bad, but I'm not that bad. Because this is what happened in the culture, because tax collectors were considered like their own unique category of sinners. This charge is often leveled against Jesus. You eat with sinners and tax collectors. So in this culture, there was sinner bad, but then there was like tax collector bad. And that's kind of what we do today. It's like, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not like tax collector bad. I'm not like kill anybody bad. I'm not like cheat on my spouse bad. I'm not like rip off my company for $50,000, but I'm not done stuff like that. And so in our estimation, we have built up this righteousness. I mean, I go to church, I read my Bible, pay my tithe, I fast every once in a while. We'll hide behind this resume, we'll do all these things, and it, according to, to our perception and our perspective, we've measured up, others haven't, and that gives us license to look down on them. But Jesus upends all of this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. This is how Jesus leads out in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that phrase, poor in spirit, means? It means those who are bankrupt spiritually, bankrupt morally, know that they don't have it all together, know that they're sinful, know that they're broken, overwhelmed and overburdened by the guilt and the shame of understanding that they could never measure up to a perfectly holy God. And Jesus says, that's the group of people the kingdom of heaven is for. It's not for those who think they are righteous, who think they have no need of forgiveness, who think they have advanced to a place where they no longer have sin in their lives and now look down on others and shut the door in their faces. That's not who the kingdom is for. And the work of the Pharisees, it wasn't to usher people into the kingdom, it was to shut them out. But they didn't realize when they did this, they were locking themselves out of the house. And Jesus goes on to, to address this in just a few moments. So, so we'll see even in their zeal and their desire that what well, this is what's so deceive, deceiving about it. It was in their adherence to the law, uh, even in their zeal to lead others into the faith. All it did was further reveal their corruption. So let's read again from verse 15. Back in uh, Matthew chapter 23. 
He said, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. So woe number one was shutting the kingdom door. Woe number two is multiplying legalistic disciples. This was the issue with the Pharisees because their sin wasn't in check. They just kept multiplying it over and over and over again. Now, the Jewish culture during this time uh, was not terribly evangelistic. Um, It it was uh, more about salvation by segregation. I'll share that from R.C. Sproul here in just a second. It was the idea that we were really saved by being separate from the world, by just coming away from the world rather than infiltrating the world with the light uh, of the good news as the Lord had commissioned them to do. Uh, So even uh, at that, the Pharisees actually tended to be uh, a little bit more zealous and their evangelism. But as they uh, made converts, if they were unfortunate enough to do this, it wasn't so much about leading them into true faith as much as it was their version of toxic fundamentalism. That's why Jesus says of them, when you make a proselyte, a convert, you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves because they weren't just converting them according to the word of God. They were converting them according to their own legalistic traditions. And church, listen, there's maybe not a more deadly combination on the planet than a culture of toxic legalism and fundamentalism and the zeal and the energy of a new convert. I mean, it's like somebody who joins a gang. What are they going to do? I got to prove myself. Ain't nobody going to keep these rules better than me. Nobody's going to enforce these rules better than me. Ain't nobody going to out-Pharisee me, right? Like I'm going to nail everything. And when others don't, I'm going to prove my worth by calling them out, by separating myself from them. And this is sometimes the game that we play. It's, it's like we, we just, we know like the message sometimes it's preached in legalist environments. The message will say, the preaching will say you're saved by grace. But then in practice, it's that you're saved by guilt. You're saved by shame. You're saved by living in fear. And heaven forbid we ever stumble and trip and fall because we'll be cast out. The door will be shut in our faces. This is, you know, what R.C. Sproul said about the, uh, the, the culture of this day. He said, at some point, they largely accepted the idea that they would find salvation by segregation, by making sure they did not come into contact with sinful people, so they kept to themselves. And so even when they evangelized, it wasn't as much about winning people to Judaism as much as it was leading them to Pharisaism. And Jesus condemns this. As you make them twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Again, Jesus taking no prisoners in this. You read between the lines here. By calling them children of hell, this was a direct way of telling the Pharisees, your mothers had relations with Satan. So now you know why they're so mad all the time, right? I mean, Jesus is throwing shade here. This is all, all, the, all this, this, lead, this becomes really the straw that breaks the camel's eye. I mean, they're just infuriated and they're enraged because they would never bring themselves to the place of admitting that they had missed it. What they were supposed to be doing was the work of John the Baptist, was repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, was preparing people for the coming of Christ. But instead of ushering people in, they were shutting people out. Instead of welcoming them in, they were showing them the gate, but they were locking themselves out in the process. And the inherent warning that we get over and over and over again when we look at the scribes and Pharisees is that it is entirely possible. Listen to me, do not miss this this morning. You can know your Bible cover to cover. You can run circles arguing with people, doctrine and theology. You can be a culture warrior defending the faith. You can do all of these things, church, and perish for eternity in hell apart from Christ. This is what Jesus warns. I want you to turn to this. This is Matthew chapter 7. And listen, man, I, I tremble every single time I open this passage of Scripture. 
Because Jesus just warns us here, do not hide behind your resume. It cannot save you. It's Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus warns here. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Stop hiding behind your resume. Stop hiding. I don't give a rip how many Bible studies you've been to. I don't care that you know about the seven seals and revelation. It is possible to have a head full of Bible, but a heart far from Christ. Have you entered to the kingdom yourself? Are you ushering others in? Are you stuck in? Do you have orthodoxy and orthopraxy? Do you have preaching and practice? Or is your head just full of Bible? Because listen, guys, if we're hiding behind our religious resume, we are standing on a thin layer of ice directly above an eternally unquenchable hell. One day it's going to collapse. In this life, you might fool me, you might fool yourself, you might fool everyone around you. We will not fool the just judge of the universe on the last day. We have to be so on guard against this. We have nothing to stand on except for the goodness that has been freely given to us in Jesus Christ. Why is Paul so eager to throw his religious resume in the trash? He says it's a bunch of crap compared to knowing Jesus. His perfect righteousness, it's so much better. It's it's all that we have as hope for entering into true life and joy and freedom. Stop hiding behind the smokescreen of how much Bible you know, of how many studies you've been to, of how many conferences you've attended. Stop hiding behind these things. They cannot save us. Our only salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ, and that is not a work that we can do for ourselves. So so what do we need to be doing today? How do we respond to these things to make sure we are not doing what it is Jesus is condemning here uh, in Matthew 23? A few quick applications for us this morning. First, we have to be careful to make genuine disciples according to the word of God, not according to the traditions of man. We make genuine disciples according to the word of God, not according to the traditions of man. This is what Jesus condemns earlier in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew 15. The problem is that they were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I'm gonna put a a chart on the screen for you this morning. I think this is gonna be really helpful for some of us. Uh, This is actually from the ESV study Bible. If you have this, this should be in your study Bible or you can access it online. And uh, you you wanna take a picture of it, that's fine. I won't judge you for that. Or if I, you know, maybe you're bad at art like me, you could try to scribble this down, but it's, it's pretty Pretty simple. What you see, uh, these, these concentric movements from inside out, we start in the middle with absolutes, and then it moves to convictions, and then opinions, and then questions. This is what legalism does. It treats questions and opinions as equally authoritative as absolutes. So we, we touched on a few of these last week. Again, it, it takes the opinion, Christian parents, you should only send your kids to Christian school or homeschool them, and it treats them as an absolute. And if you're not doing that thing, it means you're not faithfully following Jesus. It'll, it'll take the conviction Christians should abstain from alcohol. And that may be your personal conviction, but it will treat it as an absolute. If you do that, if you don't fully abstain, it means you're not following Jesus. And again, it tends to be very well-intentioned. But when we start to take opinions and convictions and treat them as absolutes, that's how we create a culture where we shut the door in people's faces. 
We start with the absolutes. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you, Jesus said. We start with what the word of God commands us. From there, we form convictions and opinions and we ask questions. So we don't start from the outside in. We start from the inside out with the foundation that the word of God is sufficient and authoritative. And so we're not going to hold people to a higher standard than Jesus holds them or to what the Bible holds. And we have to be very, very careful uh, that we not impose opinions and convictions as absolute. Second, we must mortify the sin in our own lives before we multiply our sin into the lives of others. Again, church, our goal is not to make disciples of ourselves. It's to make disciples of Jesus. It's teach them to observe all that he has commanded, not to observe all that we have commanded. And we just have this tendency when we leave our sin unchecked, we tend to multiply that dysfunction into the lives of others. And if you have kids in the room, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I've given this example before, but again, guys, we can tell our kids all day long. Seen it my own life. I can tell my my boys, look, hey, when you're mad, just because you're mad doesn't mean you can yell at your brother. Just because you're mad doesn't mean you can raise your voice at your brother. But if when I get upset at my kids, I yell at them and I raise my voice, guess what they're going to do? They're going to yell and they're going to raise their voice. You know why? Because we teach what we know, but we reproduce who we are. And if we don't keep our sin, if we don't get it in check, and I, I say get it in check loosely because, listen, our sin is not meant to be contained. It's meant to be destroyed. But we have to be busy killing our sin, as John Owen said, or it will be busy killing us. And worse than that, if we leave it unchecked, it will multiply into the lives of our children or into the lives of those that we are discipling. So we have to be very careful to be on guard against this. But third, most importantly, we must usher the lost world into the kingdom and we must enter the kingdom for ourselves. Listen very, very closely this morning. You cannot lead people to a Jesus that you're not following. You can't usher people into a kingdom that you yourself have not entered. And listen, we dare not hide behind our spiritual resume to say that we've got a spot there. We have to be so on guard against this. Listen, this religious pride, man, it just, it just gets buried in our hearts And I think one of the reasons why uh, legalistic fundamentalist environments continue to thrive is because that type of preaching and teaching in particular, it really motivates our flesh. It gives us this sense of power. It gives us this sense of control. It gives us this sense of, I can do these things. And so we, we declare this moral superiority over others on the basis of the things that we do or don't do. And Jesus says to all of this, woe to these things judgment and condemnation to these things. Church, I'm just urging you this morning, do not hide behind your Christian to-do list because we can't hide behind it. We can do this for a moment, but it's going to be revealed in the last day. But listen, again, my heart this morning, it is especially burdened for those of us who have been burdened by this. Let me just do, do, do this this morning. So we, we've touched on a lot of things the last couple of weeks about uh, the burdens of the religious culture, of, of getting to places where it's like, man, I'm just ready to tap out. Can't keep up, and so I might as well just quit altogether. If, if you, I just, I'm gonna ask you just to be really honest across this room this morning. If that has touched you in your life in some capacity this morning, would you just slip up your hand where you are? I mean, just look around this room. Just like look around this room. Does it not grieve us? 
But there's so many who walk away from the church, not walking away from Jesus, but walking away from the burdens of man-centered religion. My heart just grieves because that is not who Jesus is. And like, if that's you this morning, I, I pray that you would just hear that above everything else. That is not Jesus. This is his invitation. Come to me, all of you who are weary. If you're heavy laden, if you're burdened, and what's his promise? I will give you rest. Everybody say that with me. Rest. He says, you take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you know why it's easy? And you know why it's light? Because he's already finished the work for us. He doesn't just pile it on top of us and say, good luck keeping up. It's not a preaching of you're saved by grace and a practice of, but you got to keep it with guilt. It's true joy. It's true freedom of knowing we can lay our burdens down. Listen, you can, you can burn your religious resume this morning at the feet of Jesus. You can know the joy and the freedom of knowing that he's already done the work. And if you've been burdened, if you've been beaten down, you can know the joy and the freedom of having that burden removed today. So just bow your heads with me as we close our time together this morning. As we are prepared to come to the table for the Lord's Supper, we come here to be reminded that the work has been finished. Your salvation is not predicated on your ability to keep up with the commands. No man can declare that you don't know the Lord simply because you will not abide by their traditions and convictions and opinions. Romans 8 tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, none. God can't give you guilt. He's not gonna give you shame. He's not gonna hold that over your head because he doesn't have any of that to give you. It's love and freedom and salvation and forgiveness and that's what he offers you this morning and you can know this. So as we prepare to come to the table this morning, let, let's just do this through, through just a, a moment of examination of confession and repentance. Maybe, maybe you just need to take a moment to lay down some religious pride that's welled up in your heart. Maybe at times causes you to look down on others and condemn others. And again, maybe what you need to lay down this morning is the burden that has been placed on you. Not placed there by God, placed there by man. And listen, you get to, you get to throw all that down at the foot of the cross. So fathers, we prepare to come to this table this morning to remember the broken body and shed blood of your son, Jesus, to celebrate what it is he has accomplished for us that we could never accomplish for ourselves. I pray for the person who's burdened that they would have freedom today. And Father, for those of us who are prone to burden others, Lord, would we repent? prone to measure our righteousness against other sinners, Lord, we repent of this. That we would not be those who are shutting the door, but who are opening it up and ushering others in. So Father, as we come to this table this morning, we worship you, we celebrate the perfect finished work of your son, Jesus Christ the joy of knowing that we can turn from our sins, that we can lay our sin at the feet of the cross, we can repent. 
can call on his name. We can believe in his perfect life, death, and resurrection, and we can be freed from the burden of man-centered religion to know true freedom and joy in you. So Father, we worship you now. We thank you for what you've given us in your son, Jesus. We remember his death and proclaim his life. We ask all these things in his name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.